And it's not being judgmental about like you did it wrong. It's more like, hey, you've been trying to keep up and the stakes keep getting higher for what technology needs to be doing. And we're here to help you with that. On the show today, we're talking to US-based company Launch Darkly and their CEO and co-founder, Edith. And actually, this is part of a doubleheader because we're speaking to John, the CTO and co-founder on Friday's show. In this first edition and look at Launch Darkly, we're finding out why the market is changing and why customer-centric software is more important than it's ever been with features at its heart. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly tech podcast with myself, David Savage, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you a bit of technology news. Joining me today, I've got Akish back on the podcast uh, for a double header. This is a rare departure from our usual format. We've got two interviews from the same company this week, Akish. Launch Darkly Week, is it? Launch Darkly Week. CEO and co-founder Edith today. Yep. CTO and co-founder John on Friday. Recorded about three months apart, either end of the summer. So quite Mm. interesting to kind of get contrasting views of how mm. things have just moved on a little bit from john uh, on this on the other side of the summer so both of them will be quite interesting to listen to in tandem mm-hmm. um and uh, i think i made the same horrendous mistake at the beginning of each about getting confused about san francisco and uh, and oakland because it had been a couple of months since the beginning of, of since the conversations mm. I, w- I wonder also which episode will get more plays too fair it'll be, it'll be good for them to, to have a little competition so if they're oh, listening yeah. to it you know contact us in a month's time and uh and we can tell you that edith, edith or john <laughs> um, but we will start with edith it was recorded back towards the beginning of the summer so some time ago now she's ceo of the business co-founder as we've said uh we'll dive into that interview uh and obviously an explanation of who launched darkly are then we'll be back with some quick commentary and a bit of technology news Today, we are talking to Edith. Uh, Edith, you are the CEO and co-founder of Launch Darkly, and you're joining us all the way from San Francisco, right? Uh, I'm actually based in Oakland, but it's uh, right across the bay from San Francisco. Yeah, I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, as a fairly ignorant Brit, that well, I, I suppose it's, it's kind of broadly right. As you say, it's the Bay Area, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's definitely a pride thing, though. Um, right. Oh, is it? Yeah, I think it would be like oh, if you said uh, uh, you're from Liverpool instead of Manchester. Oh, oh, well, that that would be a horrendous mistake to make. So <laughs> I apologise deeply. Okay, right. So you're across the bay anyway. You're not in San Francisco. <laughs> How are you today, anyway? I am grand. Thank you for asking. Uh, and look, you, as we said, you're the CEO and co-founder of Launch Darkly. Before we get into anything else, do you want to just quickly uh, introduce Launch Darkly and tell us what you do? Yeah. So LaunchDarkly is a feature management platform. Uh, We allow developers, product managers, and the rest of the business to launch and control features uh, using our platform. So we have about 1,000 plus customers worldwide, and we serve 6 trillion features every day. So how did the business start? I mean, looking at your your background on uh, LinkedIn, you obviously hold a number of kind of writing positions you've been mentored to other to other businesses you've, you've run a podcast um so you, you've obviously kind of taking the experience that you've got and, and sharing it around but what led you to be in the position that you're in today with launch darkly uh, so i actually started off in engineering uh so i was an engineering designer um and i actually have some patents for work i did on deployment between staging to production 
And it is immense hassle just to get deployment going, mm-hmm. just to get a steady pipeline going. So I think for a long time, the industry focused on that. But once that kind of got a little smoother, there's problems after that about if release is easy, how do you deploy and how do you get the right features to the right person at the right time? And from that, we did launch Sharkly, which allows you to take a feature from idea to release in different waves of internal users and customers that have access. And why is that such a a demand right now? I'd imagine that with the pandemic, there's a huge amount more businesses who are trying to get products out to market quicker than they've ever done it before. And the opportunity for that to go wrong is is quite high. Yes, it it's there's more demand than ever for fully functioning features and the stakes are much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you are a large bank and suddenly people can't go to the branch anymore and everything needs to be online, you need to make sure that those things work correctly and also that you're doing it in a compliant way with different regulations. Out of interest, is, is banking one of the areas that, because that, if I take a step back, London in particular is kind of seen as a bit of a fintech capital. And I had heard that that financial services in the States were maybe not quite as progressed when it came to tech, technology offerings. You know, when, when you say that, that demand is obviously high at the minute, is that one particular sector where you have seen a spike or are there other areas of, of kind of business that, that have really been interested in, in the products and how they can make sure that they're getting uh, products out that are, that are going to be compliant and are going to work properly? I, I think it's, we could be used for many different industries. We've mm. certainly seen much demand from financial banking insurance uh, just because the traditional ways of, you know, calling a call center, going to a branch are not really so awesome right now due to the pandemic. So people yeah. want more and more functionality to be available uh, through a laptop or through a mobile phone. So how is, look, how is this affecting how businesses are transforming? Because the way that we've been talking about it over here, and I don't know whether it's how you've been talking about it over there, is that kind of, you know, you're seeing kind of a leap forward of six years in six months and so on. That's very much the language that we're hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what used to be a 10-year plan is suddenly like, great, how how fast can we get this out? Maybe next month. And, and that's, you know, that that's something that, is pretty consistent across the board and is it is it businesses i suppose i suppose is it businesses that have got a heritage in technology that are saying that or is that is that businesses that had previously you know they had a technology stack but they're just having to engineer quicker i suppose there's a huge amount of businesses who've, who've never really used tech before who are having to kind of think think about these problems in a way that that maybe they they would never have done so without the situation that that is now a, a upon everyone yeah, we have a really interesting customer base because we have a, a, a mix of very forward, you know, ground up cloud first companies like Envision or Atlassian. We're mm-hmm. like, this is always the way we've worked. We've always been very cloud native. We've always been very agile. Mm-hmm. And then we also have, we call them stalwarts, which are huge banks, which are like, gosh, we need to get out of the everybody can go to a branch mindset and get modern. Or we're going to get surprised from uh, behind by an upstart like a Stripe or a Plaid. Right. How's this changing the way that 
that you're working with your clients and how soft well hang on let's let's take a step back because i'm going to accidentally scramble two questions into one there but how are you working with clients at the moment first of all because is is that fundamentally different to how it was say nine months ago i'd say what's changed in the past nine months is just a lot more realization that cloud is here and it's not going away um we just had our user conference uh and I did a panel with a user from Fidelity. And he was talking about the pressure that they're feeling to just like, hey, we, we need to move forward right now. And also to move forward right now in a safe, compliant way. Was there some debate that cloud might not stay? <laughs> that, that, sorry, that's kind of astonishing to hear because it's funny because cloud is something that we've been talking about for a very long time. But the level of investment in cloud has never been higher. So the idea that it might go go away is quite astonishing. You know, that's what I said six years ago when we started the company. Um, so we're a cloud native company. And six years ago, I used to have these debates with uh, potential customers about like, why are you in the cloud? We absolutely need to have this on our own data center. And like that has just gone away. Like people are like, how now are like, how can I get out of this data center? So look, if, if people if people are only just kind of coming around to that that way of thinking now, have they, I assume then you still have quite a lot of on-premises um, tech in some of the businesses that you, that you deal with in the States and, and in your local markets. Uh, do you mean our customers do or we do? Well, no, no, sorry, our customers. Definitely, obviously not yourselves, but you know, new customers coming to you, do you find that they have, I suppose, what you would consider quite archaic kind of setups in terms of on-prem um, tech, maybe in-house teams that you know they haven't they haven't kind of gone and decided to to go to a hybrid or an on-cloud platform basis uh i think archaic can come off as judgmental Fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like if you if you know so i'll give you an example of a bank i visited in australia you know they are kind of like an archaeological dig where they have different layers of technology which was all very modern at the time you know, they have some systems which are in Fortran for basic transactions, and they layer on top of that what was state-of-the-art in the web 20 years ago in terms of, like, some Java framework, and now they're trying to move to the cloud. And it's not being judgmental about, like, you did it wrong. It's more like, hey, you've been trying to keep up, and the stakes keep getting higher for what technology needs to be doing, and we're here to help you with that. Surely it's easier for some of those businesses to jump right from kind of ground zero to 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 move very very quick I, I suppose it's a bit like a country if you haven't got kind of a traditional telecoms infrastructure jumping to to 4g is a lot quicker is that is the principle not the same yeah but the it's funny um this is a quick digression uh my, my grandfather worked for at&t the american telephone company yeah yeah and uh in the 70s he would go out and lay um telephone lines for people for the first time mm-hmm so he said it was fascinating just how much of a change a telephone made in somebody's life. Um, particularly even in the 70s, like this is the first time that their, their village or town got a, a phone. So, so to answer your question, it is easier to start from scratch. On the other hand, it's also sometimes easier to have a legacy base where you really understand what people want and have access to that. Like... Um, Particularly in financial, it's incredibly complex in terms of like backend systems that interact with each other, and you do need to have a knowledge of how those work together. So if we if we come back to kind of how you actually work with your clients, um, 
prior to the pandemic, did you try and get on site? Did you try and get into the businesses? Or, or have you always been kind of someone who can deploy remotely, et cetera, and, and, and maybe hadn't gone in and, and, and worked alongside a team? Uh, our product is completely standalone. You know, a developer can install it in about five minutes. Mm-hmm. What we really liked doing about going on site, which we did frequently, was really understanding the business requirements of our customers to help build the product further. And I really miss that part. Like, um, I remember visiting, uh, we have some car manufacturer customers in Germany, and just being on site with them and hearing their problems. That was so much fun. Like, um, yeah, I, I visited a car manufacturer and they had a poster on the wall of like, um, no more dot releases. You know, and I, I said, you know, why do you why do you have this poster of dot releases? They're like, we might be a car manufacturer, but we need to be fast, not just our cars, but our software. And like a dot release implies that like you're doing a release every month or every quarter. We need to release every day. So like they were just really trying hard to get out of this mindset of uh, we're bending metal to we're building a better way to drive a car. And I got all that from just seeing this poster and asking them about that, which, you know, it's much harder to do if you can't visit people. How, how have you worked around that to try and make sure that you can get those, those nuances of a business that you, you get when you're sat in an office or, or next to someone? It's hard. Uh, more phone calls, more Zooms. Um, it's, it's still, you know, we've, we're, we're trying to adapt, but there's definitely so much you learn from just sitting with a customer, even for a half hour. And looking at the posters they have on their wall, like I remember another customer I walked in and you could see all their personas up. I love personas and really seeing exactly what they were focusing on. And then you could ask them like, hey, why do you care about this persona? What's important to you? You just, it's it's hard to replicate that. Yeah, yeah. Look, you mentioned there about the, um, the release every single day. Obviously, continuous delivery is something that's kind of massively important now to businesses in terms of being able to get products out to the market quickly and kind of get them in the hands of, of customers, et cetera. Um, what are the barriers? What are the blockers that you're seeing that stop a business being able to do that? And how are they how are they managing to solve those issues? So I think a big blocker is that businesses don't actually want to release every single day. Right. Uh, that's extremely terrifying if you're, uh, you know, a, a bank manager of like, what? The software changes every day. How do I even know what's happening? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what LaunchDarkly, uh, my company helps with. Uh, we give you gates on software so that the business user can decide who new features go to. So this new feature can be available and then a business user can pick like, Hey, this is just going to go to the Liverpool market and we'll test it for a week and see if it works in Liverpool. And then maybe we'll push it out to Manchester too, or maybe we'll just decide, Hey, this feature needs a little bit more work because, uh, perhaps we're flooding some backend system that didn't expect to get a million requests, hmm. uh, which, which is a real use case that happened with one of our customers. Uh, they changed around in their uh, user interface about how to check your balance. And suddenly everybody was checking their balance much more frequently, completely toasted their backend system that wasn't used to everybody checking it that often. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> so you built their own problem. Well, but because they were, you know, then they can say, hey, okay, this is more popular than we thought. Let's dial down this feature and then go fix that backend system instead of the whole right. thing just falling over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Look, uh, sorry, wait, wait, go on, sorry. Oh, so, so, so just to sum it up, you know, uh, just because you can release every day doesn't mean that you 
need to or have to. It's just about getting the right feature, the right person at the right time. Before we hit record, we had a quick chat. Um, secrets of the podcast kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit here for the listeners. But you said that you'd be keen to talk about how people are building software now. And I just found that quite interesting because, look, I, as, as anyone who listens to this regularly will know, I have a politics degree. I'm not, I'm not an engineer. So every now and then there are, well, no, quite often there are limits of my knowledge. But what, what did you mean by that? Because in terms of how the software is being built, I, you know, I, I often think about, you know, okay, fine. So you, you've got a product that you can plug into your business or it's, it's maybe there's a team kind of somewhere else in the world and you, you're dealing with an offshore team or something along those lines. But what what did you mean by how people are building software now that's fundamentally different to, I suppose, uh, kind of you're, you're implying to how it was a short while ago? A short while ago or a long time ago? What's the more interesting answer? Oh, <laughs> I'd say 20 years ago when I started off in software, it was much more, or even let's go back further to, to Windows 95. There was this idea that you could actually have a piece of software, Windows 95 and OS, that would live for a long time. Hmm. You know, the famous launch of Windows 95 was, you know, the Rolling Stones, Start Me Up, Bill Gates dancing on stage, crazy video, yep. over, pull it up. It's like, even like the number 95, like this is a software for 95. And when you look at that software release, it was actually three plus years of work. So like Microsoft back then had like a year of deciding what to build, a year of building it, and then a year of testing. And the drawback of that was that in those three years, a lot could change. You know, the world around Microsoft, even that changed, even at that time was changing where like browsers suddenly became a lot more important when they weren't paying attention. So what has fundamentally changed in the last 25 years is there's no such idea now, or I hope there's not, of we will do a release that will live on for forever. It's We will do functionality, and we are going to continue to iterate and build and prune and change and improve instead of just having a fixed dot release. And you see this all the time. Like if you have a mobile phone, you're constantly getting new app updates. The, the apps that you got even three years ago on your phone are not the same anymore. They're better. It's because people, uh, software needs to constantly improve to meet the needs of what people want. How is that affecting the software developer then? Because, I mean, we, we've we've spoken tentatively around software developers having to become closer to UX and UI. Is it because they have to understand the customer more or the client more who, who's dealing with, with that piece of software? Or is it more along the lines of, of working alongside automated processes because it's just physically impossible to, to do all of this manually? I think it's that you can get actual feedback from users like 25 years ago or even 20 or let's shorten it to 10 years ago. A lot of software was designed by, I called it the uh, most important person in the room. Yeah. Like you'd have the product manager or the VP who'd say, this is the way to build it. And you'd spend six to nine months building it and it would go out and quite often it would just fall over and get thud. Like, I think every software developer has had that awful experience of I stayed up weekends and nights to build this, and it's a total flop. And totally good intentions by whoever designed it, just flop. Um, now with shorter cycles, you could be much closer to the actual users and get feedback in really quick iterators. Iter uh, sorry. You can get feedback in very quick iterations. Hmm. You could put out a feature and see, like, hey, does anybody want this at all? Like, um, I was in product at TripIt 
which was the number one travel app. And my boss, the founder, absolutely wanted this feature, like absolutely wanted it, like pound the table. And we built it and nobody used it, but we figured that out pretty quickly. You know, I was like, you might want this. The market does not. Hmm. On the other hand, there are some features where we weren't sure if anybody wanted them. And then the response was just immense. And we could have these very, very, very quick feedback loops, which is extremely gratifying if you're a developer because every, every engineer is in it because they like building things. Like what feels better? I built this feature that nobody used or I built this feature that now has maybe 20 passionate users who it changes their life every day or a million users who get to enjoy this and I'm improving their, their, their life. That, that feels awesome if you're a developer. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been fascinating to have a conversation with you. Thank you very much for giving up some time today. Uh, before, we, before we go, if someone is interested in Launch Darkly, how would they best go and find out more? Uh, well, we have a website, www.launchdarkly.com. Uh, there's a lot of information there. We also offer a free trial if you're interested in using the product. All right, perfect. We'll make sure that there's a link there. And uh, yeah, Edith, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. I think it's the first time that I've heard a soft uh, basically I would have described this as a as a cloud software house mm-hmm. basically managed service software I hadn't described people talking about a feature development platform before mm-hmm. um and it was interesting to listen to Edith talk and see this natural evolution from um from it being very much a software company through to a feature company. And it ties in really closely with this customer-centric view of the world that everyone is espousing now, certainly during the pandemic, where actually features, and she talks about, you know, um, you put a feature out and you ask uh, if anyone wants it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you put something out that you're sure that people are going to want. It doesn't really work. And sometimes you put something out that you weren't so sure. And the response is immense. Mm-hmm. And it's that customer-centric view of the world and it's rate, it's rate, it's rate that now is more prevalent than it's ever been. Yeah. And, and I think I'm, I'm the same as you. I remember we were having this conversation well before we hit record. And I was like, well, I always thought it was just a, a software house is how I would describe it or a software company. And a feature company where it's all about kind of keeping up to date with the customers and the, and the customers demand. I think that's massive at the moment and it's everywhere, isn't it? You switch on the news. It's all about kind of the demand for, for, you know, making things suitable, making things much more appealing. Um, and people actually going after, you know, the revenue that is, you know, kind of targeted to a specific group of people. I mean, how many times have we said it on this podcast, right? Like over the last few months where we've talked about uh, kind of Generation X, Y, you know, kind of the, the the older population, millennials, these sorts of things, and people actually being customer focused and centric, I think, I think is massive. Um, and, and what these guys are looking to do in the platform they have is is, is very, very good and, and very cool, I think. And, and you just have to look at the, the people that they're working with. You know, some massive companies um, over in the US. So I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and to your point, it does tie into recent conversations we've had. So Global Web Index with Chase, when mm. we were talking about how 
uh, Generation X and the baby boomers are having a much bigger say. And it's because they are the ones effectively spending money. They are customers. So getting to understand their needs is important. And that's that's a fairly new demographic in terms of in terms of technology because Gen Z as a millennials have been on tech for a long time. So we already kind of know what they want. Mm-hmm. And then if we jump back a couple of weeks to Jonathan Prest, um, the CTO at Sales Cycle. So I don't know whether you remember that conversation, but where we were talking about what makes a good engineer in 2020. Mm. And when Edith is talking about um, that iterative bit and the iteration getting faster and faster and faster, it again is moving away from the technical aspects of what makes a good engineer and moving far more towards communication and understanding again of that customer-centric dynamic and, and making sure that you're reactive and forward thinking and creative. Yeah, I think so. That conversation with Sales Cycle, I think it was all about kind of, you know, a good engineer was always someone that we thought was just leave him, let him be, give him a computer, you know, and they will code their hell out of whatever product or, or you know thing you need. And I think that conversation mentioned kind of well, it's more about that. It's more about kind of bringing that team together. It's more about now you know, kind of being that SME person and sharing of knowledge and bringing the team and and collaborating and having that kind of, I guess, that relationship across the group, right? Um, We're obviously the same thing as Edith, where it's like, right, you know, in order to to kind of develop things, there needs to be that constant communication, that liaison with each other. And as teams, especially now, given everyone is not in an office together and sat closely and, you know, kind of all, all... all kind of working towards something is where it's all remote they need to kind of have that that i just guess that onus really to to crack on get things done and 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 make sure they're all together and uh look well worth uh a bit of a review of um uh when either you know you're talking there about uh how we traditionally view software and is there ever has there ever been a more traditional view than bill gates dancing on stage Edith talks about it it's well worth going back on youtube and having a look at but uh yeah one year to build one year to test one year to roll out we've moved a million miles away from that um to this point where it is just continuous release test release test and and just get a feature out there and see how it goes but watching bill bill gates dance never gets old it is quite good isn't it that is that that clip (laughs) oh just the lack of rhythm uh and the sheer awkwardness on on view is he knew uh, he knew what he's doing with software, but not sure he knows what he's doing on the uh, on the old dancing tiles. To be honest, that's right. Tech, techies and software developers are quite cool now. They're yeah. all like you know tattoos and beards and drink coffee yeah. in Shoreditch. Yeah, um, and they probably can dance. So great, wider evolution of technologists as a whole. Anyway, <laughs> the appearance has been upgraded as well <laughs> from cheaters and dad trainers. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, just another point, by the way, before we move on. The fact that cloud is here and it's not going away. I I know I stressed it in the interview, but the fact that there are some organizations out there that this is still a surprise in 2020. You know, Edith said that she was talking about it six years ago, shows that whilst we are making progress, there is still a lot of the world where technology has yet to really make an impact and just shows the the scope and the opportunity Mm. for organizations like this to really help some more traditional businesses who aren't online to make that transition. hundred percent. Do you know what? There's a conversation I had last week. Obviously my day job isn't podcasting uh, as many of our viewers. No, no, no. I mean, you know, I I know I pull it off pretty well, but, um, (laughs) but in my, in my recruitment job, uh, I was having a conversation with someone quite senior in a, 
you know, global investment bank. And they are only just now, and, and when I say now, I mean in the last five, six weeks, are within their kind of bank, one of their banking areas, um, they're moving over to Salesforce, Salesforce cloud service. So all of their kind of customer interactions, all of the data, all these sorts of things have purely just been on either very old school CRM that I won't mention the name of, or they've been just manual spreadsheets and data sets that they've got on their computers, which is crazy. And, uh, you know, they're just now moving into a cloud service and this is impacting about 4,000 users across the globe. So, yeah, you know, you kind of think, right, if they're doing it, you know, to the words of back in the 2020, where are the organizations? Um, yeah. You know, which is which is crazy. So, yeah, I think there's still so much opportunity, and not everyone's moved over to the cloud as people may think. And it's a good reminder because it it, it shows that we're living in a little bit of a bubble where we kind of think that this stuff is just, mm. of course, it's cloud. Everyone's got it. Of course, everyone's got cloud. Yeah, yeah. Um, where well, is yeah, it? why are we talking about that? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think whereas other people, a lot of people, I think, have the the thought that maybe a lot of organisations or, or people have moved on with technology, and and they are you know, kind of all global and cloud and, you know, mobile from anywhere and all these sorts of things. I think if we take a step back and realize it's probably not all that, you know, kind of that picture and, and people are still a little bit old school, so to speak. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and and, and with platforms and, and, and kind of services like LaunchDarkly, they can help businesses out, which is which is good, which is cool. And then it gives an alternative to some of the bigger uh kind of names out there and mixes it up yeah which is which is good right we will play our quick advert thank you edith for being our guest john you're up on friday more from launch darkly a little bit further down the line here's a quick break and we'll be back in a moment now that we're officially in the run into christmas why not think about giving a gift with a story behind it alive and kicking are using football as a force for good and helping to support mental health education across Africa. You can do the same by giving someone a football from aliveandkicking.org forward slash shop. Now the footballs come in retro 90s kit designs, so go have a look and give a unique gift that will help make a huge difference to more than just the person who receives it this Christmas. By the way, we play that advert for Alive and Kicking, uh, which is my mate's... mate's Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Nepotism. No, it's a good cause. It's a good cause. Uh, and okay, this is a massive diatribe, but um, uh, I'm going to get I'm going to get an alive and kicking football for my nephew for Christmas this year. It'll be about two and a half. They do mm-hmm. do a whole lot of retro '90s footballs. Nice. Neither his mom nor dad uh, are football fans, and he's growing up in Kent, nowhere near a football club. Who should he support? Kent. Ooh. Don't know. He, he could go southeast of London, couldn't he? Could go anywhere, couldn't he? Should uh, yeah. I just buy him Newcastle stuff and just like convert him to Newcastle? Yeah, I mean, and, and then you fall into that joke of you know all of Man United fans are you know south of the M25 or something, or you know. Yeah, but people don't say that about Newcastle fans because there aren't that many of us. <laughs> <laughs> and, there's, and there's no glory, mate. No. <laughs> well, if you're a Man United fan, there's been no glory for the last eight years anyway. So. You know, oh, the, give over! You've you've done well, all right. Well, a couple of things, but you know, not compared to kind of the nineties. Um, no, very true, and the early noughties. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, 
Talking in Newcastle, tenuous link, Airbnb to collaborate with former Apple chief design, Johnny Ive. Hmm. Tenuous link, do you know what the tenuous link is there? No. He studied at Newcastle Polytechnic. Fine. He's actually from Chingford in East London. But, uh, right, okay. Yeah, so Johnny Ive, who was the design guru at Apple from uh, the late 90s through to 2019, he's the guy who is basically behind the iMac, the iPhone, the iPad, and the Apple Watch. So knighted for his services to design, um, an absolute legend in the industry, has been hired by Airbnb, who are unsurprisingly struggling big time because of the pandemic are they well yeah i guess so yeah um that must yeah, be the case. So, so i mean they're, they're talking about massive losses they've had to lay off 25 percent of their staff in may really well, people look people can't travel and the idea of going into someone mm. else's home right now is obviously a little um, bit iffy <laughs> yeah yeah but it's really interesting if we think back to the conversation that we've just been having yep. with launch about features yep. the reason that they are bringing in johnny ive is um that they've said you know that it's 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 basically fundamental to um crafting services and experience you know we we believe not only in making objects and interfaces but in crafting services and experience we've seen how design can facilitate trust and enable more human connection something people are desperately looking for during this unprecedented time of loneliness and disconnection again human-centric technology but actually far more about the look and the feel and the aesthetics of it than mm. anything else mm. and, and i think i think they probably have brought him on board just to i don't know shake things up a little bit i think they were very i mean i've used their bnb you know loads of times and i think they just had that kind of one business model where you go you book and it's all quite easy blah 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 and I think bringing someone like him on would, would help differentiate maybe the product, maybe the reach, maybe take on different customers. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how how they could adapt it really because the travel side is difficult. Unless they do an Airbnb for office space, which will be pretty cool. I'll be completely honest. Yeah, with you. I, you know, I I tend to agree with you because basically he's being charged with redesigning the website and the app. Yeah. Right. Um, as it try, you know, as they try to convince people to travel again, but. I can't imagine, and maybe I'm being naive here, but I can't imagine it's the website or the app that's putting people off right now. Nah, I think it's I think it's more government rulings and where you are, and if well, I can only speak from the UK, and you know, kind of where you can travel, where you can't travel, all these sorts of things, right? Um, Unless it's getting themselves put in a position where, when we do get back to a point where the world opens up slightly, you know, there's talk of a vaccine, perhaps. Mm very sensitive talk of a vaccine for the end of the year early next year mm. it will then obviously if that is the case if it does get through human trials it's going to take some time to roll out well, yeah I'll, I'll get it yeah. uh, <laughs> you're uh, the vip mate you are <laughs> uh uh but maybe it's to kind of get themselves in a position where they can really relaunch and go you know the world's yeah. open again and here's a new yeah. interface exactly and, and i think it may be just a just a feel to, to make them a little bit more relevant you know a bit modern bit sexy because let's be honest airbnb about a year ago was very very popular right a lot of people it was booking.com you know have you booked your hotels blah 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 or why don't you airbnb right mm. and I, th I think it will just be to make them a little bit more relevant you'll see them popping up in some major major things and i think it's to to actually launch not launch them but to get them that kind of you know next step up um to be fair re really interesting to see a tech company thinking about the design and the trust and the emotional side behind their products and features right now. 
Hmm. No, exactly. It's interesting to see how that goes. Um, right. Look, uh, I think that'll do for today's episode. Akish, thanks for joining me. No problem. And we will be back on Friday. Oh.